This is the Juggernaut Interviews, and I'm Snig Basur. In this series, I'll be talking to South Asian founders who have gone out and raised funding at different stages of their journey. What you'll hear on this podcast is stories from founders who don't fit existing tropes. Our goal is to show that every single person brings a diverse, unique perspective to the problems they're trying to solve. These are also founders who are smack dab in the middle of building across industries, target customers, and business models. Think how I'm building this versus how I built this. I'm a founder who's raised funding myself, so I know what questions to ask. I'm here not just to learn, but also to explain how our guests make the tough calls. I started The Juggernaut, a media company that tells South Asian stories, because I was tired of reading the occasional news about us. I wanted there to be more, and not just about the usual suspects. So what you'll hear on this show is exactly that, founders who are not the usual suspects. Today's episode is with Ankur Jain, founder and CEO of Kairos. Millennials are stressed and broke, or that's what we hear. So many are strapped with student debt and fewer own homes compared to their parents at their age. Healthcare is too expensive, housing is too expensive, education is too expensive. Society is clearly broken. So Ankur founded Kairos, a startup studio with a portfolio of companies that try to solve these big, thorny, trillion-dollar problems. He thinks the private sector can positively impact industries that have long relied on the government to invest in them. One company, Rhino, gives renters an alternative to locking up thousands of dollars in security deposits. Built is a rewards program for renters, giving customers a chance to earn points toward travel and even toward home ownership. And yes, I've asked all the questions about how all these companies work and why they didn't exist before. But what's most interesting to me is that Ankur talks a lot about the disconnect between the average customer and Silicon Valley. And entrepreneurship at the end of the day is about solving problems, real problems. I was also drawn to Ankur's story because folks have called him the best connected 21 year old in the world. So how do we all become him? Spoiler alert, Ankur also reveals how his family story motivates him to this day. I'm Snigda, and this is my conversation with Ankur Jain. Tell me a little bit about who you were as a kid. I read that when you were seven, your father flew you around to meetings as he was taking his company public. You also founded your first company when you were 11. So tell me who you were like as a kid and if you always knew you were going to be a founder. I was, I was a troublemaker, I guess. <laughs> um, so my dad just quit his job, put everything on the table in... 96 when I was six years old and and the whole family quickly became a startup. <laughs> I mean, we were every day after school at the office learning what it's like. So I had this uh, crazy little combination of being a skinny Indian boy, <laughs> learning tech and startups and causing trouble. And what you quickly realized, I've never, I never thought I was going to be necessarily a founder or entrepreneur. I just really was bad at rules and taking things in a traditional route. And so that just naturally gravitates you towards more of an entrepreneurial path because you can kind of do things a little bit more the way you think they should be done. Um, well, tell me a little bit about how you got into trouble. Growing up, so my, my parents were very conservative, strict Indian parents, as you can imagine. And so anything less than A grades, obviously, was not a acceptable solution. But I was not a big fan of homework, not a big fan of tests. And in fifth grade, almost got booted down a grade because I wasn't 
doing my homework on time and just silly little things like that. But what really I think like kicked off my entrepreneurial journey by accident was uh, we had such a conservative financial approach to it. And I remember when, when I used to ask my parents, I'd say, hey, can I get a budget for going to buy some, some new toys or a workout gear or whatever it might be? They'd say, sure. And you can also pay for your tuition also. No. <laughs> so what that forced us to do though, as kids was get really creative on how to get things we wanted, which is what they encouraged as well. And so, you know, the story you're probably referencing, I remember like when I was 11, that was really when I actually started my first company by accident. Uh, I just started seventh grade. I really wanted to make the basketball team. And I was really a small kid at the time. So odds were not in my favor. And so I read online about this new plyometrics workout equipment where it would help you increase your vertical jump. And I thought, maybe, just maybe I could be the kid who could dunk the ball and then they have to put me on the basketball team. But this workout equipment was like 200 bucks or something like that at the time. And so obviously I asked my parents, like, why would you waste $200 on these workout shoes that don't actually work? Like, this is ridiculous. And I saw that the company was advertising on like Yahoo and all these random places. So I went home and I started reading like coding for dummies and built my own website that kind of looked a little bit like a Yahoo for kids. And we built the first like web to mobile messaging system, kind of like AOL Instant Messenger, but for cell phones. And I built this to send to the company and ask them to do an ad deal with us. But instead of paying me for ads, they would just send me a free pair of, of shoes. And so they ignored my first email, ignored my second email. And eventually I called the company and just asked to talk to the CEO. I mean, I was 11. Somehow some customer service agent was nice enough to put me on the phone with the CEO of this fitness company. And uh, we pitched him on the idea and he ended up agreeing, sent me a nice big box of our workout equipment. Um, I still never dunked the ball, still never made the team, but I did start my first company. That's huge. Well, all of this for a pair of shoes. Um, I love that. You even dared to ask to talk to the CEO. There's also a phrase that you know that people are like, oh my God, like Uncle is the most connected 21-year-old. <laughs> How did you build your network? You tend to call them your friends. You've met some of them through family. You've met some of them through your other friends. I, I know this sounds crazy, but truly, I actually do think networking is a bad, dangerous concept. I do think what you'll find though is having a platform is really important. And what happens is when you have a business, if you have a, a mission or a purpose or a platform, it naturally attracts people who share similar interests to you. And it just so happened that the kinds of things I was passionate about tended to, to cross over a lot of different industries because the stuff I always enjoyed touched policy work and government work, but also technology and innovation. And so as a result, like when we started our first, my first true platform, which was in 2008, I just started at uh, Wharton undergrad. All of these smart kids I was going to school with were graduating, they were a little older than me, without jobs, right? And, you know, this, the traditional track had been you go in, you go into Goldman, McKinsey, whatever. And if you couldn't find a job because you were unemployed, then you were like a founder. <laughs> and so we had this crazy idea of saying, hey, what if the smartest people coming out of Penn at the time and others could start refocusing their efforts on tackling big problems through startups, right? It was this idea that it was no better time. It was, the opportunity cost was gone. There was no banking jobs. So what if we redirected that talent to building companies? And that became the platform. We created one of the first incubators in the university ecosystem. Today, there's like 100 million incubators. But at the time, 
no one really wanted to be a founder, right? It was still like a, you get your Goldman job and then maybe you think about it later. And that platform ended up being the first kind of lesson for me. And just when you share like a purpose that lots of different folks can get behind, it just naturally attracts the right kind of networks and people. If you chase, they always say it's like money, happiness, love, like these things, if you try to chase it, you'll never get it. And the same thing is true for networking. If you try to network, it's very transparent and no one wants to uh, connect with you, right? But if you have a platform people can relate to, you can really build some amazing relationships. I also hate the word networking because I think some people misunderstand what it means. And I really agree with a lot of what you're saying. This is a very perfect segue to what you're working on these days. So let's talk about Kairos. It's been described in so many different ways. It's been described as a network. It's been described as an incubator. It's been described as an investor. How would you describe Kairos to people? So in 2008, we had set up Kairos as an incubator for university-based students. I left in 2012 and Kairos kind of evolved and fizzled into different types of things. I went off, started another company called Human, which we sold to IAC, ran product for Tinder for two years, which we sold in 2017. And at that point, the world was in a crazy place again, kind of reminded me of 2008. We just come off the presidential elections and any way you looked at it, what you could see was a massive divide in this country, fueled in large part by the dislocation of just the average person. Suddenly you could be doing everything right. I mean, look at our generation. You would go to school, you'd get the degree, you'd work the long hours, you'd move to the city for the job. And now you're 28, 29, 30, and you're still living paycheck to paycheck, even with your salary, because the cost of housing is so high, the cost of healthcare is so high, your cost of living was going up, and the quality of stuff you're getting is going down. And so it felt like this moment, the right moment, which is what Kairos means, to do something about it. Across Silicon Valley, it was just everybody's pitching the latest, hypiest buzzword. It's like, how many buzzwords can you fit in a deck? Is it blockchain, you know, VR, AI, metaverse? Like, there's always some new buzzword. And people were forgetting that entrepreneurship has always been about solving problems. And so we actually bought the name Kairos back, um, hence the two different iterations of it, and started a new company, a startup studio, with the idea of building and creating a portfolio of products to fix people's biggest life expenses, housing, healthcare, student loans being the top three. Since 2017, We've gone after upfront costs of housing, security deposits. People have $45 billion of cash. Think about this. $45 billion of savings are locked up in security deposits. I want mine back. (laughs) Well, we can help with that, right? So the average person, the average renter who's under the age of 35 has $1,400 to $1,500 locked up in a security deposit. And if you live in a major city, that's a lot more. If you think during the COVID stimulus, I mean, one $1,400 check, stimulus check from the government was the difference for people making it or not to the next month, right? And so when you think about every renter having that money tied up somewhere where they can't use it, their landlord can't use it, that's a pretty significant impact on the financial health of our generation. And so we said, wait a second, when you rent a car, you don't give like Hertz if they're even around anymore. Like you don't give them $10,000 in case you get into an accident. You pay $5 a day for insurance. Why, when you rent an apartment, do you have to give your landlord $1,500, $2,000? Why can't you just pay $5 a month for insurance? And we created that. And in just like the last year, for example, during COVID, we gave renters back about a quarter billion dollars in cash from their security deposits. And so there's just really cool, simple ways that I think 
we as entrepreneurs can help fix these broken systems if we just direct more capital and more talent to these trillion dollar problems, not to these buzzy, you know, metaverse problems. <laughs> Silicon Valley right now, I spent some time there. It's crazy right now. Every single thing is about crypto and NFTs. And <laughs> if you look at some of the most successful companies, they were never the hot company when they started. I know. Coinbase, Netflix, Robinhood. There was always a story for why these companies would completely fail when they were founded. It's a fascinating thing. And like, you know, as a, as a founder, it's tough because like the incentives are whack, right? I mean, the venture community is trying to make vintage bets on a trend. So they'll just throw lots of money at a concept, hoping one of them works. But then as a founder, it becomes very hard to raise money if you're not fitting inside one of those boxes. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about that. I read that you raised about $25 million and then you were seeking founders who would share this vision going back to a platform that brings the right people together. Was that difficult to do? You were like, hey, I'm not going after the hottest things. I'm not going after fintech or crypto. I mean, this was 2017, 20. I'm going after the core basic things of you know that humans deal with every day. What was that conversation like to get your initial investors together, how did you find those initial founders as well? The short, sad answer is we didn't find many companies like that. And within about a year, we changed the model and we stopped looking for outside investments. We raised $120 million and just said, we're gonna build stuff ourselves. So we spent about a year and I gotta tell you, this is the challenge. There is such a buzz around Silicon Valley stuff that a lot of smart talent has been pulled into that ecosystem. And I think now, four years later, you know, we've launched four products under Kairos. The smallest company four years later is a quarter billion dollars. And our largest is, you know, is the healthcare unicorn in Europe. So that hopefully will set a good example for all the rest of the ecosystem that, hey, look, this isn't about just like going after nice to have social stuff. These are big, dirty, core trillion dollar markets that need solutions. And if you can figure it out, it grows super fast. You're now going into building these, you know, companies within under the Kairos umbrella, but you still need to recruit your team members. Yep. So how did you find them? So what we kind of looked at is how do you take the best of working at a big company with the excitement of working at a startup? The nice thing is with, with the way we built Kairos, it's actually you're part of one large company. But as a hire, you get the benefit of working in a smaller team at that specific product level, and you get the upside of a startup. So one of the coolest, I think, innovations we did was we said, what if you could have equity in a startup? What if you had the safety net of a bigger company where you don't have to worry about raising capital and the company's ability to raise capital? And every year, you can actually sell your vested shares back. So it's kind of like a publicly traded stock, you actually have liquidity. Yeah. That type of opportunity has helped us attract some of the smartest people in the industry right off the bat, because you're getting all the benefits of a startup with the kind of broader safety net of a large company. Back in 2019, you warned that if we didn't fix healthcare and student debts, that these issues would compound and we would not be prepared in a crisis. And then COVID happened. How do you think the pandemic changed Kairos' trajectory? What happened during that time? These problems have been here for a decade plus, right? Since the last financial crisis, our generation's been dealing with these issues at the minimum. COVID just for the first time shown a national spotlight or global spotlight on just how bad these things were. And as a result, 
all these industry incumbents were finally willing to rethink. I mean, when you're a big industry, like whether it's housing or healthcare, even though you know it's bad, there's very little incentive to change, right? But when all of a sudden, 30, 40% of people may not be able to make rent the next month, as a landlord, you're willing to rethink what happens because all you know you're now giving three months of concessions out to somebody who's renting, and so that forced even the healthcare industry to start adopting new technologies. If you take like our healthcare business, Sarah, it's our only company in London, and we had a thesis four years ago, which was why is healthcare limited to the capacity of nursing homes and hospitals? In fact, most of the time, especially for seniors. They would rather have a chance to get the care they need in the comfort of their own home. I mean, imagine you've, you're 80 years old, you've got your entire adulthood as an independent person, and then somebody comes along and says, you got to leave your home, we're putting you into a nursing home, and that's it. You're going to live the rest of your life there. And so we had said, what if we could bring quality, affordable care back into the home? Well, business was doing decently in 2018, 19, I would think it was like a 4 million pound run rate. Then COVID hit, and all of a sudden, hospitals were over capacity. Nursing homes were exactly the center of spread for COVID, and the governments realized they needed to shift people out of those facilities. But we were the only company at the time that had built a truly robust system end-to-end -end for recruiting healthcare workers, training healthcare workers, providing that care at home at a level of quality kind of enabled by technology. And if you look two and three years later, that business now does 300 million pounds a year of revenue. And it's because we were able to actually create, and we, we helped the UK government create 10,000 jobs throughout COVID just by training people who were losing their jobs in hospitality, airlines, travel, et cetera, uh, into healthcare workers. I kind of want to talk about this kind of interplay between the quote unquote public sector and the private sector. Some people would argue, well, why does Kairos need to exist? Why isn't the public sector getting on this problem? Public-private has always been the best solution to solving your problem. People, people forget, like, the reason we've been able to move through this pandemic, we developed, tested, and passed an entirely new uh, type of technology and vaccines, right? And that was a direct result of a public-private partnership. That would not have been possible with one or the other. And so when it comes to these big, hairy, thorny issues that affect so many people, whether it's healthcare or housing or lending or things like that, it is that interplay. And I think one of the mistakes, in my opinion, is that over the last 15 years, the mindset in Silicon Valley has been move fast, break things, ask forgiveness, and ignore the government. And that worked for a little while. The policymakers were burned, and now they're more on the attack against tech than ever before. It's Silicon Valley became the bad guy all of a sudden. But I actually think there is an, a way to do both. You also have a phrase, this is not philanthropy. This is not charity. It's still a business model that's trying to be profitable. Having the operations be private sector, I guess you're assuming it is more efficient in some way, even though it is working with the government to make the policy happen. These are private sector problems, right? It is a private housing group providing housing to a customer, right? So the government can provide regulation, but they can't change the service provided to you by the private sector. That's where, that's where innovation comes in, is we can change the service offering and the government can help regulate and provide scale. Let's talk about Built. I'd love to hear what it does, how you all came up with it, and how it's doing. Built has been the, the kind of 
big holy grail project we've been working on at Kairos for over three years now. And it, we wanted to tackle this challenge of rent is the single largest expense for people. You put 30, 40, sometimes more of your percent of your income every single month into rent. And up until now, you've got nothing back. You can't build your credit history by paying rent, even though it's the biggest liability you have every year. You get no points and you get no closer to home ownership. People talk about buying a home when you're older, but you've been spending all this money on rent for a decade. And so what do you have left to put towards home ownership? We spent three years building out what is the first ever loyalty program and credit card. It lets you earn points, build credit and build a path to home ownership just by paying rent. So we have 2 million apartments that we started with, um, brought together the entire industry to create like an SPG Marriott Bonvoy Star Alliance for housing. So you can rent in any of these apartments across the country now and start earning points on rent just by paying on time. You should sign up my apartment building. We, we, well, we <laughs> even, even better, we then worked with the banks and worked with MasterCard and some of the large banks and said, let's create the first credit card that lets any renter pay rent with no fees and earn points. And so we created the Bills MasterCard where you can actually pay at any apartment now in the country. And even if your landlord doesn't accept credit card, you can pay through the app with no fees. MasterCard will send your landlord a check and you'll both earn points and build your credit history with every rent payment. And then what's really exciting is, you know, you can use these points for all the usual stuff. Or we worked with the U.S. government again and we went to them and said, why can't people use rewards points to buy a home? Turns out after 2008, that was actually not legal. There was a very clearly defined set of funds that you can use to buy a home. Your personal savings, a gift from a nonprofit, or a gift from your parents. So basically, kids with rich parents can buy homes and no one else can. (laughs) And so we said, why can't you use points the way I do for airlines and hotels and everything else? Why can't I use that towards a down payment, especially if I'm earning points on rent? And so we worked for two years with FHA, FHFA, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and got approval to be the first ever program you can use points towards a down payment. So now, just by paying rent, you earn points, you build your credit history, and when you're ready to buy a home, you can get a mortgage with a better interest rate and a lower down payment because you can use points towards that. It's really, really nice to finally get something back for your largest expense. These innovations sound too good to be true. It's like, why didn't this exist all along? And you're clearly showing there's like three years of work behind it. But I'd love to know for those initial buildings you signed up, how do they agree? They must have had mild panic attacks to change their behavior. So one of the cool things about the private sector versus the public sector, in the public sector, someone says, here's a blunt hammer that we're just gonna fix the problem. And typically somebody wins and somebody loses. In the private sector, it doesn't work like that. I need to have value for the customer and I need to have value for the landlord. I need to have value for the bank. And so the whole game is just about being really transparent about what every stakeholder's interests are and how to create a product that aligns all of that. So if you look at build, landlords spend a fortune on attracting new residents, turnover. So 50% of residents move out of a building on average every single year. And when someone probably moves out, worse during COVID, you know, way worse. And when someone moves out, you've got to pay for the three to four weeks of no income on rent. You got to pay to attract a new resident. You have costs to like turn the apartment. All of these are hard costs. So if you can use a program like a loyalty program 
to reward residents for staying and reduce that turnover, it's a win-win. On the card side, if you can create a program where landlords can now accept card payments for no cost. So they don't have to pay the fee on it. That's right. They don't want to collect checks and have to scan it, but they don't want to pay the 3% fees. And so with a product that says there's no fees for the landlord and no fees for the resident, you allow those payments to go digital. And for the banks, here's a really great opportunity to acquire a next generation customer who otherwise wasn't going to use this spend anyways on your card. And here's a way for them to now earn something back and sign up rather than spending thousands of dollars acquiring them with free cash and giant point bonuses and this race to the bottom that doesn't actually create loyal customers. So it's just about creating that win-win-win, which is also what Rhino did and what Sarah did. And I think that's been the key. That's a really important thing in entrepreneurship is actually creating value, which many people forget. Um, So I love that you've mapped that out. I I really also want to dig in into, we talked a little bit about Silicon Valley being out of touch. They're chasing after these shiny objects and trends. I like to hear a little bit like your theory, because you've been exposed to so many of these people and so many of these trends. Why is that? It's really tough when your worldview is shaped by everyone you talk to and know in the same city. You can be the most uh, intelligent, self-aware person, but the way that you're viewing problems and the way people you talk to view problems is just fundamentally skewed, right? And I kind of look at like those famous run of like valet on demand apps. Like it's like you're hanging out with a bunch of other rich VCs in San Francisco coming up from the peninsula and everywhere you go, people complain about parking in the city. And all of a sudden you convince yourself that parking is a problem, even though this is a microcosm of the rest of the world. You see this happening a lot uh, in the Valley around benchmarking to other startups. So if you're a founder, one of the problems is you tend to stay in the startup ecosystem. And so you're constantly being asked, well, how does your product compare to this product? Or I heard about another startup that just raised money that's doing X. 10 years ago, I had a chance to have dinner with Jack Ma and David Way from Alibaba. And they were telling us the story of how Taobao just kicked eBay's ass in China. And they were saying, the biggest lesson we learned is we never spoke about what eBay did as a competitor. We never cared what the competitors were doing in the market. If competitors were ever doing something worthwhile, our customers will tell us. But until a customer tells us, we don't care. And the reason that's important is what happens is the average customer hasn't adopted anything in this ecosystem yet. But startups tend to be four degrees away. So you've got the first company that does photo sharing and the photo sharing app that has filters and the photo sharing app that has filters that has peer-to-peer, you know, commenting and trading. And, and before you know it, your new startup is trying to benchmark against V3 of this technology. But the average customer in Austin and Minneapolis and New York and DC is still not even adopted V1. And I think that's what happens in the Valley. Somebody starts to talk about VR or blockchain or AI. And then before you know it, everyone's racing to compete against the latest startup iteration, not what the status quo is in the market uh, for the average customer. And just a dangerous little cycle. I see it every day. I see it every day. I have to talk about the fact that I'd be remiss. You come from a very different background from many of the end Kairos customers. How do you understand the realities of the everyday end customer? So my parents were first-generation immigrants. And so when they came here, like you hear the story all the time in like the Indian circles, but like it's, it's easy to forget. I mean, my dad grew up in a 
poor village outside. It was like a suburb of a suburb in India. And he actually even blocks a lot of these stories from his mind because it was so tough growing up. But my, my grandpa would tell us these stories. I mean, like they didn't have food to eat on a pretty regular basis. You know, he fought his way through. They take one standard exam in India, no matter what kind of income or class you come from. And that test can place you into a, a university. And he was one of those kids that broke out and got placed into IIT, which then kind of opened up a career path. And, and one day he got a job as a junior, junior, junior guy in New Jersey. And he moved here really with truly like no money and moved into an apartment with like three or four other people and lived and kind of worked as like a junior guy in this mainframe computing company. And, and really like even when I was born, they still were just getting up there. But what was amazing is that was the American dream, right? For our parents' generation, you could come to this country and work your way up with that economic mobility. I got a chance to see that happen for my family. All the money was in a startup. My, you know, we had to sell our car. My dad was walking to work to do a startup and I would go with him after school. And like, and all of a sudden you build something that became you know, a $40 billion business. That American dream doesn't seem to exist anymore for our peer group. And I see that with my friends and I see that with people that I went to school with, I see that with friends of friends. I see that people who came out of even like Penn who are so burdened with student debt that like they're now in year 10 of working at consulting or a tech company or something and still paying off student loans. I mean, this isn't a problem that's like, so removed that you're talking about how do I help someone in a foreign country? This is like very real to our generation across the spectrum. And that's the inspiration of Kairos. Like, why can't we have the economic stability and freedom to move up across the board? And that's what drives Kairos. Thanks for sharing that. No, I too come from, I'm actually an immigrant. I was born in India and I wasn't even born in a city. I was born in I think a village off of a city. <laughs> so I totally feel you. I, I got to see that happen. Okay. I'm going to leave you with this question. Cause I'm like genuinely curious as a founder who's, I don't think my sector is going to be hot until it's really obvious. Like I know it when you are kind of swimming in that other direction, or when you have a very unique viewpoint, what allows you to keep going? Having that super clear North star of why you're doing it is I think really important. I mean, Built has changed 50 times over the last three years as we tried to refine it. But the core issue of you get nothing back on your biggest expense and you get no closer to home ownership was always the North Star. Rhino has changed a ton, but we always had the same thing of people shouldn't need to have thousands of dollars in savings just to access housing. That doesn't make sense. So the iterations of that have changed 100 times and we keep evolving it and adding to it. And same thing with healthcare. Like our healthcare business has been People should have the ability to access affordable health care in their own homes. They shouldn't have to be dependent on outside systems and infrastructure to get access to it. And so people will always shit on your idea. But if you have the right North Star, eventually you'll get there. And then everyone will be like, oh, well, that's so obvious. Of course, that was the right solution. Any other advice for folks who are listening in? Yeah, I mean, listen, just don't if you're in the founder world, there's a great quote someone uh, once asked me this is probably five years ago. The thing he said to me was, once you think you have your idea for a startup, and now you've kind of envisioned this world with your product in it, go back and ask yourself if you could still live in a world without it. Knowing what it would look like and knowing how it would change the way people behave, could you be okay living in a world without it? 
And if the answer is yes, stop wasting your time and go do something else. And if the answer is no, then you know that you're committed enough to make it through all the shitty parts to get to the other side. But too many people, I think, jump into a startup because they think it's a good opportunity, not because it's something that you feel needs to exist. That's it for the show this week. Ankur Jain is the founder and CEO of Kairos. Next week, we're chatting with Lee Mayer, co-founder and CEO of Havenly, an interior design marketplace that matches customers with designers. If you like this show, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this, and share it with someone who you think would love to hear Ankur's story. Natalia Alcantara produced this series. Golda Arthur is our showrunner, and Josh Dang is our sound engineer. Sahil Ansari composed our theme music and Mina Shoab designed our art. Thanks for listening.